0: This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. One Sunday in July of 1914, a 51-foot yacht called the Asgard slid into Hoth Harbour, low in the water with its cargo of 900 German rifles. It was met on the quayside by hundreds of Irish volunteers, one such volunteer was John S. O'Connor. As the group marched back down the Hoth Road, they were met by police and army forces, which attempted to disarm the men. In the ensuing riot, John S. was hit in the head with the butt of a rifle. He would carry the scar for the rest of his life. John S. O'Connor took part in the 1916 Rising as a member of F Company, 1st Battalion. Holding a rank equivalent to that of a sergeant, he fought in the Jemison factory in Smithfield and the surrounding area. At the time of the 50th anniversary in 1966, he recalled his experiences serving under Ned Daly, who announced the plan on the Monday morning. He
1: stood up and he said, Men of the 1st Battalion, in about two minutes you are going into action. That was all he said. And with that we got the order to march. We went through, there's lane laneway runs from Blackhall Place And I was directed by the late uh, Dermot O'Hegarty, who was my immediate first lieutenant, uh, to go down to the distillery, to James's distillery. And he told me I was to write a barricade there. So we started immediately on the direction of a barricade. Uh, There was nobody in the distillery. We found we had the whole place to ourselves. And it was a wonderful building, solid stone. We were hoping that we'd be attacked because to such a sound position to defend. And we went down and we started on the building of the barricade and we built the barricade across the road just at the entrance to that yard. As it went across, uh, and we built the barricade there. And it was a very difficult job. Most of us were not used to that kind of work. I think most of the lads I had with me were engaged in some kind of clerical work. The hauling of sacks, of grain, and that kind of thing, didn't suit them so much. And their hands, their hands started to suffer. It was too, too rough. Now, it was a pretty considerable job. We didn't get it all done on the Monday. We were still at it on Tuesday.
0: The first few days of the Rising were quiet, and the men spent most of their time dealing with the reactions of Dubliners to the revolt.
1: We were bothered a lot by people who wanted to come in, particularly by men from the post office. They... Postmen and sorters. They said that we'd have to let them through, that their jobs would be gone. And I say, that they had to be there to get the mails out. And I said, well, there'll be no mails today. And they said, oh, the mails must go. That was their attitude. <laughs> the mails must go no matter what, that no volunteers or rebellion could stop the mails. I strengthened them then that if I let them through, they'd be to going into Mary Street where they'd come under fire. And the best, of their, the best thing they could do was do a home. And they were not, not satisfied at all. Some of them, I think, tried to get through in other places. Then we had, on the other hand, people coming from inside our barricade. The looters. They, you know, the people coming down with parcels under their arms. There was uh, rolls of tweed, woolen garments, things like that. And we were in doubt as to what to do with them. It felt like taking the stuff from them and sending them off. But then somebody suggested, well, they've gone and they've pinched the stuff and let them get away with it. It won't do any harm. So, they, well, some of our people, at some of the barricades, they were stopped and they were deprived of the stuff they were carrying. At others, they were let go through and told to get to hell and not come back again. But our main trouble for the Monday in shooting was people
0: trying to get in. Tensions mounted as the men awaited the British response, and the volunteers prepared themselves for all possibilities.
1: Our minds were obsessed with the idea of a cavalry charge. Because we had heard about the Lancers in O'Connell Street. And we thought if the British attacked us, it would be with cavalry. And I don't mind telling you, we hoped it would be, because we were in a fairly strong position to deal with cavalry. If you gallop cavalry up to a barricade, well... Pretty few of them would get there. And we had a long, narrow street with stone walls on each side and we had the the ground all covered pieces, lumps of coal. High up, filed about four feet high, so that uh, horses couldn't, they'd duly fall on it. They couldn't uh, overcome it. We waited all the week for that attack, but it never, it never materialised.
0: By Thursday, the British Army began to respond in force as reinforcements arrived by boat. We started
1: to get snipers, and we didn't know where they were coming from. We had reinforced our barricade with the bales of sheets of brown paper, closely packed brown paper. We put them along the top with openings in between for a rifle to fire out of. And we also heard the whine of the bullets. And then we saw a couple of bullets stuck in the paper, where it went in, penetrated about half an inch and didn't go any farther. Now, where they came from I don't know, but from that on, there was the sound of terrific fire. And of course we knew that the main battle was taking place in North King Street, which I think was the most bitter fight on the whole of Easter week, was the fight for Rayleigh's Fort in North King Street. And it was members of F Company who were defending it. And they were under fire, I think, for about 36 hours. Incessant fire. They never got a chance. And eventually, I think it was on uh, the Friday night or Saturday morning, they had to to give up. The place was falling around them. And I think they they bore the brunt of all the fighting. We were waiting around the corner, waiting for an attack. We had to be there. We were an outpost. There was nothing between us and uh, British Barracks. We had to be there already. Mm. And on time we went up to Father Matthew Hall and I think I was, a few of my men were taken away when they saw that we weren't getting attack, and they were put into positions in North King Street and I think it was North Brunswick Street they called it then. But that, in my opinion, was the most bitter fighting of all.
0: On Friday evening, on nearby North King Street, a number of civilians were killed by British troops in their houses no soldier was ever found guilty of these crimes. Military authorities, including General John Maxwell, who commanded British troops in Ireland at the time, subsequently denied the severity of the incident. General Maxwell, in his report on the rebellion, he was dealing with the
1: outrages committed by his own soldiers in North Street, where they took people down into cellars and kitchens and shot them. And he admitted that there were certain excesses but claimed that uh, it was inevitable that would happen because the men had seen red on account of the terrific fire they were under. Well, that was an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary excuse for a, an experienced general to make. Well, that was that his men saw red. And they'd killed several, I never heard the actual number. But they just, when, when, when the volunteers had gone into the forecourts, his men went in and took these fellows down into cellars and kitchens and just shot them out of hand.
0: On Saturday, the order for surrender was sent to the various garrisons and outposts across the city, although it wasn't always successfully delivered.
1: We didn't actually hear of the surrender, but I we went up and to Father Matthew Hall and I found that Royal East Fort had been evacuated. And that left the British in complete control of Church Street. And there was a barricade down at the end of Church Street, just leading into the forecourse, And that has been, the whole of Church Street has been swept with fire. So we went, a couple of us went down onto that barricade, and we got it pretty hot there. It was really bad, it was a, a house had fallen down from the rifle fire. A very old house on the corner, and we were lying on heaps of rubble, and broken bricks, and uh, firing away up the street. Firing on what was our own chief stronghold, that was Riley's fort. And then I got, after we were a couple of hours at that, I left a few men on my own barricade, and then I got a message out from the forecourts. I think it was in whether Frank Fahey or Ned Daly, that I was to bring all my men back into the forecourts. So I brought my men out, I think we had about eight to ten left at that time and I brought them out into the old men's shelter there and when we got round to that we turned to the left and then we came right under the fire from the Smithfield on the far side. We had to go down the whole way along that Hammond Lane which must be a hundred yards and the rifles were banging behind us and nobody was this, only one man there was a small barricade which we ourselves had erected near the forecourts and we had to jump that and we did jump it, every one of us except one poor fella got a bullet in the leg a hole was bored from a shoemaker's shop named Cocklands into the forecourse. and that was the way we entered the forecourse. but it seemed to me then perfectly clear although nobody told me again Ned Daly's object in getting us into the forecourse was he didn't want to have us surrendering in isolated groups. He was afraid that he might get badly handled by the British. He wanted to do the thing in the proper formal manner. Dressed in his full uniform, he paraded us in the forecourts and then sent word to the British to come in. The British soldiers filed in and they, they surrounded us. We had been in the forecourt yard for about four hours when, 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 he, when he did that. But uh, satisfied,
0: that was his object. The volunteers were largely met with hostility by Dubliners whose lives were disrupted by the week's events. Many did not share a belief in physical force republicanism and many more were dependent on husbands and fathers fighting in British uniforms in the trenches.
1: From that, we were marched up to Richmond Barracks. It was quite a good march. We were all fairly tired. We'd been on our feast practically for the whole week. But the crowd up there around Inchicore were fairly hostile. They shouted at us, Called on the British to bayonets and that kind of thing. They didn't throw anything at us, but uh, there was a line of British soldiers from the Kilmainham at the Richmond Barracks, right down the whole way to the bottom of the North Wall. A continuous line with bayonets fixed and close in together, and we had to march between the bayonets. If you stumbled or fell. To a foot either way, you're going to get a platter of a bain from a British soldier. But I'm satisfied that those British soldiers
0: saved us from our own people. They were very hostile. John S. O'Connor left Ireland under the cloud of a failed rising and with public opinion firmly against his actions. During the period he was incarcerated in Britain, however, the prevailing sentiment swung back to support the rebels. Dublin was in a shocking state.
1: The whole place seemed to be on fire. But none of the city left. As soon as we got to, down near, close to the bridge, we saw so many. The fires were still burning. It was the most terrific fire I've ever known. And we thought that was the end of it. And we were all fully convinced that we'd never set foot in Ireland again. We didn't know where we were going to go. We were discussing uh, whether we were going to be sent into jails or concentration camps. And some of the lads said, well... They, they haven't got enough jails to accommodate the lot. And I said, "Don't be surprised; they're fairly well <laughs> supplied with jails in England." Another fellow said that we'd be deported to some island in the Pacific. And I said that would that would have suited me grand, <laughs> but we arrived anyway at Stafford Prison. It's a military prison, huge place. Doesn't deal with the ordinary criminal; only military military prisoners. And again. When we got to the railway station at Stafford there was a crowd of women and they were yelling out for the soldiers to ban us. It was the most hostile reception. It was even worse than the women in Dublin. But we eventually got into Stafford all right. And we were there for about three weeks just in solitary confinement. And then they started to open up. Open up doors and that kind of thing. And then we read Of John Dillon's speech, his famous speech in the House of Commons, where he praised the rebels very much, and he really uh, an outstanding speech. He abused he abused the British good and proper. But then we felt we were coming back to life again. We felt then that we were not going to be outcasts when we went home. That no matter how it would work, that as soon as we got home, uh, we would. have the support of the people
0: behind it. John S. O'Connor returned to an active role in the Irish Volunteers and the IRA during the War of Independence, and as a solicitor he went on to become Vice President of the Law Society and President of the Bar Association. A reporter who interviewed him in 1943 contemplated O'Connor's role in the Hoth Gun running. He said, It's very romantic now, is that old Hoth Gun? The Incorporated Law Society may be a very worthy body, but people will never make ballads about them. For more on John S. O'Connor and his brother Tommy, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com. Thanks for listening.